Welcome to any youngsters. And actually, you know, Bill has the excuse of vacation brain. I don't have any excuse. But the fact is that the outline that you were given uh, today doesn't in any way match what I'm going to say. <laughs> I mean, it kind of does. But the bottom line is I changed my plan midweek. And uh, to be honest, I didn't know we handed things out, but we do. So it's going to be an exciting time for you to kind of follow along with me. And uh, maybe just kind of keep your, keep your wits about you. And uh, I think we'll make it through this morning. So please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the provision that Jesus has made. And um, I thank you so much that you have made a way for us to know you, that this God who is a reality bigger than all of creation, who is a reality before the earth and the waters were formed, a reality before any one of us came into being, and a reality who will stand through to the end of time. This reality that is so much bigger, so much other than we are, has made himself personal and known. And I pray today, God, that you would welcome us into an awareness of who you are, that you would come by the power of your spirit, by the word that you've given us, and continue to reveal yourself to us, and that we would hear your word and respond, God, in the power of your spirit, in the grace that you give. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Well, blood is loud. It has a way of speaking to us like words never could, right? Blood is louder than your screaming child, which some of you might have to contemplate if you were up half the night with your screaming child, or maybe if you were on a 20-hour road trip with your six-month-old Lucy. I'm not sure how much crying was in that car. But you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying when I say that, right? That at the end of the day, blood speaks with an immediacy. You know, you can be in the driveway playing with your kids, and you get a phone call, you're kind of multitasking or whatever, and all of a sudden one of them's screaming, and you're going to get there, you're going to get to her. And you look and you see blood dripping from the elbow, and immediately you hang up, you rush to her side, you find out what needs to happen because blood is loud. I remember the first time that I really learned this was the summer that I served as a camp director. Now, I loved so many things about that position. I thought it was a blast. I loved welcoming these campers in every week. I loved watching the staff team come together and really kind of become a team over the course of the summer. I loved hosting the parents' meetings, you know, at the end of the week. This is everything we did. But there was one part of the position that I did not like, and by that I mean I hated it. I despised and dreaded every sun-soaked afternoon of your child's free time. So are you with me? We're at camp. Okay. So we're at camp, and the fact of the matter is that this, this afternoon free time was the part of the week that I dreaded so much because this was the time of the week in which normal, fun-loving teenagers, kids that you just love to be around, really fun energetic kids would become hellbent on destroying themselves, right? And there were plenty of activities in which they could do this. I mean, I, I can remember like yesterday, 
kind of the daily experience of walking into the camp cafeteria. And, you know, I was usually late for lunch. There's some issue. I'm, I'm kind of trying to snarf it down. And I'm watching the entire camp. This is 250 kids, 300 kids, all, their, all the staff, staff of 50, heading out into their places. And as I'm kind of just trying to finish out, watching these kids head out the door, the radio on my hip, you know, this radio that every camp staff director wears, would start to come alive with chatter. And it was the staff getting into their positions. And this staff would be making these announcements, sending, sending for the word to let the camp know that their activity was open for the afternoon, right? Basically, the different ways that these kids could kill themselves if they wanted. So, you know, the lifeguards are in position. The pool and the lakefront, that's not a good one, friends. The pool and the lakefront are open. The water slide's going to be running in five minutes, Next, you'd hear on the page, wranglers, they're up at the barn with the horses. They're paging for their first group of riders. The high ropes team is ready to go. Cabins five and nine, get to the course now. Can you imagine this little bit of dread that would just kind of settle on my tummy? And the last two announcements for me were always the worst, especially on the junior high weeks. Four-wheelers, they're ready to go at the bike barn. Make your way up there now if you're on the first shift. And the last one, Paintball supervisors, calling cabins four and six. Let's be clear, supervising 14-year-olds on the paintball course is not a summer job. It is a death wish, okay? I mean, this is not something you want to do. So, so began for me this long, distracted afternoon of play, right, in which I sort of worked, sort of prayed my way through it, and I could usually get through. It was usually not a huge deal, um, but, but there was always this one moment, and so it seems like it would rain. Uh, well, it's the whole expression, when it rains, it pours, right? Like, I would go for weeks at a time. Everything would be good, you know, a little uneasy, but then one week, we would have this week, and I would hear this announcement come through my radio, and I just remember every time it came through, it was like terror just, just went through my whole body. Code red to the bike barn. Code red to the waterfront. Code red to the high ropes course. And every time I heard that, and for any camp director, any camp EMT, you hear code red. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter you're maybe in deep prayer. It doesn't matter how far away you are or what you feel like. You hear code red and you run to code red. Because code red, at least at our camp, means blood. Well, technically, it meant injury, but kids plus injury <laughs> most often means blood. And blood is loud. Blood is what's most important. Blood is what's most immediate, most urgent. It demands attention. It communicates more than words ever could. It speaks with an authority. Now, I'm going to spare you the crazy near-death camp experiences and because I said blood, I'm sure already you have plenty of stories going on in your own mind. But this topic, this, this idea of blood is a great segue to our passage today. Because the text of Hebrews in chapter 12 is a loud text. It's a text about blood. It's about a blood that speaks to us in some surprising ways. It's a blood that deposits hope. It's a blood that answers questions opens up mysteries. It's the blood of Jesus, and it absolutely transforms. It fundamentally changes our relationship to God. The blood of Jesus in this passage invites us to consider three questions. Three questions. Number one, what changed because of the blood? 
Number two, what does this change mean for us? And then the last one is, what's our response to all these changes? So first off, this question, what changed? Maybe you're familiar with people who talk about the God of the Old Testament as some raging, crazy maniac, and the God of the New Testament as a loving and a merciful father, a savior. You know, maybe you've even been in a room when someone invited you to participate in this exercise where they said, okay, I just want you to picture in your head the God of the New Testament, you know, and It does not matter how much theology you've had, how much training you've had. At the end of the day, one of the pictures that's going to come up in the file is, you know, Jesus with, like, the lamb in his arm. And he's usually got a kid, too. He's like, I don't know how he balances them both. But everyone's, like, really doing well camping out there. And then the second part of the exercise is, okay, picture in your head the God of the Old Testament. And again, you know, whatever picture comes out, somewhere in that file, somewhere in that photo album is this picture of a God who's just plain scary, right? And if I could point to one story in the Bible that locks in this Old Testament image, this character who is scary God, it would be the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, this may very well be the story that some of you guys uh, had popping into your head when I said God of the Old Testament. You know, it's not unlikely that you, you may have even pictured Moses, who is God's representative. You know, he's the guy with like the white crazy hair. He's holding a staff. There's lightning, you know, going on in the background. I think it's important to us for us to go back to this story in Exodus And it's important for two reasons, because number one, as I already mentioned, this story is vintage scary God. This is the the quintessential picture of this Old Testament God, this scary God. And the second reason it's important, probably the primary reason we're going to go back to it, is because this is exactly where our text today in Hebrews 12 begins. Look at that text beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, implied here is Mount Sinai, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here's the picture. God's people are at the base of this mountain, right? This is after God has showed his powerful hand in rescuing them out of Egypt. After he's delivered his people through these plagues that he brought upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Talk about scary God, right? And God has instructed them to cleanse themselves and to get ready to hear from him at the base of Mount Sinai. And as the people gather there, a violent storm breaks out. This is ear-splitting thunder. This is flashes of lightning. This is dense smoke. Originally, we read that there's a cloud over the, over the mountain. But as soon as God begins to speak, there's a fire element too. Dense smoke covering the mountain. This is not ponchos and popcorn at the chief's gate. Okay? This is a terrifying experience. So much so that Moses will later record that all the people in the camp trembled. No one dared to step foot on the mountain. They are all frozen scared. And then God begins to speak. The first thing he says is that anyone who does set foot on this mountain, man, woman, or beast, is to die. 
you know, and he gives these instructions as if someone is thinking about a summit, <laughs> right? And we read that God continues to speak, but the people can't take it. They plead with God. They beg him, would you please stop? You know, this is not the sort of passage that you want to read, let alone experience firsthand. Honestly, even hundreds of years later, with a lot of time and distance underway, this revelation of God is not something that we're comfortable with. Am I right? No one, friends, no one wants to preach this message. And I would not blame a pastor for scheduling his vacation time around a message like this. Will you agree, Bill? <laughs> this is certainly the sort of text and, and the kind of picture of God that as a Christian, you just hope nobody ever asks about, right? Please just, may it never come up. The start of this Hebrew sermon actually makes me think of another sermon, maybe even more famous than this text in Hebrews, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you heard, have you heard of this sermon? It was written by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Listen to just a few of the sentences from this sermon. He's, he's talking about wicked men and women who stand before God. And he says this. He says, they are as great heaps of chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm when we see him crawling on the earth. It's easy for us to cut a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy is it for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? This is the picture, and most assuredly, the kinds of feelings and and the imagery that was coming up for God's people as they listened to our Hebrews preacher take them back to that day on Mount Sinai. So what do we do with this Sinai moment? What do we do with this kind of revelation of God? Well, I think there are basically two responses. One is that we tremble before this God. Or the second is that we we go the opposite end of the spectrum. We disbelieve that we should tremble with God. We're uncomfortable with this idea. So so why is it that we usually either find ourselves in in one of those places or another? I want to just take a minute. We don't have a ton of time, but I just want us to consider this for a minute. Why is it that some of us, the people that at the base of Mount Sinai, trembled before God? Well, I think the answer to that question is pretty simple. It's a difficult answer to deal with. But it's a simple answer to articulate. And the reason is because we really believe that we've encountered this true, other, perfect God. And in the light of that, in the presence of that, we sense our small humanness, our feebleness, our brokenness, and sin. In God, we come up against the most perfect being that's ever existed, the most selfless, most compassionate, loving, true being that ever was, and standing in that presence shakes us. It exposes us. It it threatens me because I'm facing something so good, so right, that all of my wrongness, all of my limitations, my selfishness, my emptiness is exposed for what it is. That's why the people on Mount Sinai beg God to stop. They can't take it. This holy presence is too much. That's one. What about this second response where, where we find ourselves, look, I mean, okay, for them, fine. But at the end of the day, 
this is overkill. They're overreacting, you know. And at the end of the day, I don't even think that I should be struggling. I'm uncomfortable with this idea that I would tremble before a God. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why people might have that response. And our time is limited again, so I won't say a lot about that. But just a couple of ideas. I think for some of us at least, we don't feel like we've encountered this God. You know, we're not aware of the God and the fullness of that presence. And if that's you today, I would just say, hey, maybe you haven't. You know, maybe this is a place where you speak back to God a challenge. I haven't come to know you. I haven't come to see you in that way. I think some of us haven't, haven't experienced God in all of his holiness. I think it's interesting that on this very mountain, during this very storm, We've already mentioned that God passed along the Ten Commandments. And the very first one reads like this. You shall have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. What he's saying is, I want your all. I am the creator God who made you for the purpose of worshiping me, of bearing my image, of reflecting my glory. I'm first. Make me first. And the command in Exodus comes with a promise. If you do this, God says, if you worship me as the one true God, then I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations of yours who love me and keep my commands. This is a big deal. God has said no other gods. And I think we sometimes underestimate how serious God is. And also I think we misunderstand his his motives in giving us that command. But at the same time we underestimate God, I think that we also overestimate ourselves, right? We think maybe just a little too highly of ourselves. You know, I reason, hey, I'm a decent person. Look, I'm, I wake up every day trying, and I'm for sure better than her, right? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, we justify, and, and frankly, we lie to ourselves. And goodness, I mean, some of the mirrors of your spouse, your closest friends, are reflecting this all the time back upon you, aren't they? they, they you realize, you know, I'm not actually being honest about how well I'm doing. There could be countless examples of this, but take the golden rule as just one example. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know, am I able to live up to even that basic standard? I mean, I think I have the best neighbors in Brookside. I love them. And I love myself even more. (laughs) You know, I haven't spent a single day of my life in which I was not at some point thinking and scheming about how to get my way. And even on the really good days, when actually I do manage to give patience to some ridiculous, stupid driver out there, excuse me, a fellow motorist, <laughs> even then, then I'm filled with pride over, wow, it wasn't that great of me, you know? And I mean, the fact is that at the end of the day, we misunderstand, we underestimate the layers of our own sin and flesh. And honestly, without some kind of help, without some provision beside us on that mountain in the presence of God, we are left desperate to tremble before him. But did you notice that our passage today in Hebrews never actually stopped at Mount Sinai? Did you see that? It was only kind of a drive-by as we're on our way to a very different mountain. Look in verse 18. It says, so you have not come to Mount Sinai, to all of this gloom and dread. Once long ago, in a terrifying and helpless place, you had to come to God on a mountain without Jesus. But now look at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven 
and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you notice those unbelievable contrasts on a view? I mean, the first time you read this text, you just see the amazing contrasts that are jumping out. No longer a mountain that's filled with smoke and dread and raging storm, and now a mountain that's hosting life, a city filled with God where you reside alongside of thousands of angels who are rejoicing. And I want you to notice specifically two contrasts between these mountains. First of all, one mountain is filled with dread, and the other is filled with joy. Notice that change. We've gone from fire to feasting, from darkness to delight, from terror and gloom to gladness. And how about this phrase, innumerable angels in festal gathering? <laughs> I mean, what? don't you just almost want to say that with me? like reciting poetry. The translation on that is a little bit confusing, but actually the phrase festal gathering was originally used in the context of parties that were thrown during the games. So think, you know, opening ceremonies for the Olympics. Or maybe kids, think about your all-time favorite birthday party. This is what the preacher's pointing to, this, this second mountain where there are a lot of angels and a lot of, a lot of parties. I think this picture of the destination of where Christians are heading for a grand celebration. I think this means that we should be good at celebrating now, right? We're a people with a joyful future. We have cause to laugh harder, to play harder, to throw more and better parties, because the place that we're going is a place of celebration. I think it's a challenge for us to lose this image of, of heaven as a park bench on a cloud and replace it with the very best Thanksgiving feast that you can imagine. That's the second distinction, or excuse me, that's the first distinction between those mountains. The second distinction is this, that one mountain we're not allowed to touch, and the other mountain is our home. Verse 20 is terrifying, right? If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. But the second mountain, the second mountain is not just a mountain we can touch. It's a city where we'll dwell alongside of God as the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Do you see that in verse 23? As Christians, we will not be merely permitted into the presence of God, but we're welcomed as sons, as daughters. We dwell with God. These are amazing differences between the two mountains. But what was it that brought the change? What made all of this possible? What, what thundered more loudly than the sound of the trumpet and the voice that people were begging to stop? It's pretty simple. It's the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 24. It's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And it's his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what does that mean? Who is Abel? <laughs> what does that mean, a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, the Hebrews preacher is taking us back here to, st to the story in the Old Testament. Imagine that. Hebrews continues to take us back to these Old Testament stories. And he's referencing a story about two brothers named Cain and Abel. Maybe some of you remember that Cain was extremely jealous of his brother. And he, in fact, he was so obsessed with jealousy that God actually came to him and warned him, saying, Cain, your jealousy is going to destroy you. You either kill the sin in your own heart or it will kill you. 
But Cain did not kill his jealousy, and instead he killed his brother. And of course, God saw that Abel was dead, and so he came over to Cain and he said, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And then Cain responded with that, that famous line that we've all heard, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And so God comes back to Cain again in Genesis 4, and this is what he says. I'm quoting now from Genesis 4. God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And God's saying to Cain, Abel's blood is crying out for justice, for you to be judged, condemned for what you've done to him. The blood of a murdered brother is crying out for justice for condemnation. Come, holy God, the one true judge, and vindicate this. This is the story that the Hebrews preacher takes us to. And why does he take us there? Well, it's because all of us in some way have this blood on our hands, right? We have had this jealousy in our heart. We betrayed a loved one, we, we, we're stuck. We're, we're chained in these sinful habits. And these actions, these sins accuse us like the blood of a murdered brother. They cry out for justice. It's interesting, isn't it, that just a few chapters ago in the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. Here we are, blood on our hands, guilty as sin. And our brother Jesus, the only one positioned to judge, instead dies in our place. Jesus bleeds so that his blood will speak a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood that twice over should have condemned me, frees me. The blood that should chain me, liberates me. The blood that should announce my ending, proclaims my beginning. The blood that should lead to my death, gives me life. That blood changes everything. And that blood is loud. It turns a mountain of dread into a mountain of joy. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean for us? The fact that Jesus made these significant changes bring about implications. And I want us to spend just a little bit of time thinking through what are the implications of this change. To say it simply, I think the one takeaway is that the blood of Jesus means that God has said to us, come. Nothing's holding you back. You are not exposed, trembling and helpless in the storm of my presence. You've not come to Mount Sinai. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. The command there is simple and it's crystal clear. Embrace, come, see that you do not refuse him. But why would I refuse? I mean, it's kind of a strange command, right? Why would I ever turn away from this better voice, this word of grace? Honestly, this seems to me like one of the greatest mysteries in my own human experience. Why do I keep listening to other voices? Why am I putting my trust, my, my sense of security in my job or in my bank account? Why am I, like, seeking out here for happiness, trying to be liked by others or affirmed These things are things that can be shaken, taken from me, and they're not what matters ultimately anyway. When God has offered me his unshakable security, his unconditional love, is that not enough? Well, it is enough. It should be enough. And the rest of this paragraph is going to develop that. 
is it's going to help us understand the kind of power that comes with the voice of God. God does not just say things and, and it's something to think about. God says things, and it is. That's how the creation of the world came into being. Let's dig a little further into verses 25 through 27. Now, some of this language is a little bit confusing, but I think as we probe, we'll begin to understand what this Hebrews preacher is saying, beginning 25, the second part of that verse. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This idea of heaven is where God dwells fully. At that time, his voice shook the earth at the time of Sinai. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, so we've managed to pass by Mount Sinai, right? Where, where we had been trembling in God's presence. But now here we go again in the presence of God's voice shaking things up. What is going on? What's the deal? Have we not had enough of this, right? Well, I think this passage is going to, the short answer is no. We haven't had enough, and we're going to get into that right now. A couple things to keep in mind. One, I just want to review the key changes we've talked about is that this passage has shown us that Mount Zion is very different from Mount Zion, from, from Mount Sinai. Those two mountains are very different places. And that, that through the blood of Jesus, we have now found covering in the presence of God. Now, those are the big changes that have happened. It's really helpful to note the one change that has not happened in this passage and the the change that's not going to happen in this world, and that is God himself. God, his character, his holiness, his love, God remains the same. In fact, in just one chapter later, Hebrews is going to state this explicitly. God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this God still has a voice. Okay, now I don't know about you, but part of me wants to resist this. I'm done with scary God, right? Hasn't he been around here enough? But I want us to keep two things in mind. First off, the voice of judgment that we're seeing here in these verses, in this passage, this scary God is Jesus. At numerous points in the scripture, we read that God has given all judgment to his son. John 5, makes this explicit. The father judges no one. But he's given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And then second, if we really think about this, we do not want scary God gone until scary world is done away with. Okay, and that is really what verses 25 through 27 are all about. They are pointing to a final judgment, and they make us realize that this final judgment that they're describing is a grace. It's actually a grace for those who are in Christ. There's, there's some business here, some brokenness and sin, yet in this world, the blood of the murdered brother is crying out for vindication. And for those of us in Christ, the voice of judgment is a grace. You see, these, these verses point back to a prophecy that happened in the book of Haggai. And that prophecy is looking forward to a final judgment day. Just like our Hebrews preacher, this prophet Haggai from the Old Testament recalled that experience on Mount Sinai. That was no small deal. He looked back to that early encounter with God. And as Haggai considered that past event, remembering the towering voice of God, he looked ahead to a future day in which God would speak once and for all. 
when at the end of time, God's voice would sound with a final word of authority and everything evil, everything wrong, everything unjust, every sadness, every pain would be removed. Haggai said, this day is coming when God will speak as the final judge and nothing except what's good, except what's anchored in him, will be able to stand up against that voice. Can you imagine being able to raise your voice and eliminate cancer? The voice of God speaks, and every mourning widow is quieted. All wars cease. It's a voice that will close every hospital, empty every cemetery, restore every lame body. It will renew every feeble mind every broken soul. Haggai said, this day is coming. God's voice will be raised and only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. And this is the powerful voice. This is the voice we've been invited to listen to. You know, too often in our lives, we respond and we listen to every voice except for God's. We listen to empty voices Empty voices that promise that we'll be happy. If, we could, if I could just land that job, if I could just meet that spouse or take, take that really cool vacation, if, just get a little rest, a little better schedule. We listen to urgent voices telling us, you don't have time for God. The deadlines at work are too pressing. Your kids are just young once. Your family needs you to do this, whatever the cost. You know, sometimes the loudest voice in my own life is my own condemnation, my own self-condemnation. Why can't you get this right? God's given you so many chances. Or have you ever done this where you start to mentally bargain with God? Like, oh, I really want to pray about this thing, but maybe why don't I have a few good days like reading my Bible? Look, if you start to mentally bargain with God, that's the same moment that you've stopped listening to the voice of Jesus' blood. Sometimes we even imagine the voice of scary God coming down into our lives. Like we're back on Mount Sinai, cowering there in front of this angry God. He's dropped a few lightning bolts just to keep us honest. You know, that fender bender last week, or your kids getting bullied, your sister-in-law in in depression. These voices are not God's. These voices are untrue, and they need to stop. The blood of Jesus has spoken a better word. And it says, come in the grace and provision I've made. Come and listen to me. Come and have free access to me. If you're a Christian today, whatever voice you heard coming into this room this morning, hear Christ speaking to you. You are my beloved, my son, my daughter. You are welcome fully in my presence. Be made whole, be made perfect Come to this mountain where eventually everything sad will come untrue. My blood has spoken, and my blood is loud. And if you're here this morning and and you're not counting on this blood, or you haven't placed trust in this blood of Jesus, this passage is also speaking to you. With it comes some challenges, because what this passage is saying is that without Jesus, this voice of unending grace is absent from your life. This voice that will speak everything evil out of creation. This effective voice that speaks acceptance before God is something you won't hear. For all of us, how can we refuse this voice? I mean, look, I get it. Hearing this voice, believing this voice, trusting this voice is so difficult. I mean, almost every day I am way more attuned to every other voice 
I struggle, I struggle to listen and respond to the voice of God. But the reason that I'm fighting for this faith in Jesus, this belief in the blood that he shed, that speaks, is because I believe there's a day coming when God's voice will rise again. And all of this, this pettiness, the tears, the frustrations, the, the futility of this world will be lost in the light of his presence. There will be a fullness of joy in his feast. Whether you hear it or not, that voice that kills death, that brings life into existence, is speaking now. Don't refuse it. So we've seen these major changes, and we've seen the implications, how the blood of Jesus has made a way for us to the Father. We've come to see that we're no longer aliens and strangers, but we're sons and daughters. And that we come not just to a loving Savior, but also to a just judge who will shake and remake this world to be what he's intended all along. And so this Hebrews preacher, like any good preacher, he takes us to the final response of, what does it mean for me? How do I respond to that? Look at Hebrews beginning in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is the consuming fire. You know, the last part of our text today is really straightforward. We're, invite, we're invited to respond in two ways. One is to give thanks, and the other is to worship. Let us give thanks. I've always kind of hated it when someone just says that, like, let us be grateful. <laughs> it's like, well, what does that even mean? What does that look like? You know, how, how, why is that so important? But actually, gratitude is really important. It has a lot of different expressions. And I think sometimes we don't think hard enough about the way that gratitude can actually be so transformative. Uh, you know, what this passage has on view is not some sort of gen, or excuse me, I was mixing two words, generalized and zen. (laughs) It's not a zen state of gratitude, a generalized kind of thankfulness. But what this passage is talking about is a kind of eyeball to eyeball thank you to the giver. And that's really different. So in this case, maybe this is just a prayer of gratitude to God. Have you ever noticed how rarely we simply thank God in prayer? You know, so often this, this part of thanking God is like a little formula that we start or close our prayer with, you know. But why not really, truly just give thanks? There's a book that I read a couple years ago called 10,000 Gifts. And it was about a woman who decided that she was going to do just that. She understood God as her giver. And she was going to just make it a practice in life to give thanks. And she found it to be a life-transforming experience. That's one thought. Another way that I think we we really express this gratitude is actually to recount specifically how a gift has blessed us. Isn't it just the totally best thing when you give your son or your nephew this present that they've really been wanting? Or maybe they didn't even know they wanted, but it was a cool gift, right? And they're just like playing, and they're playing so hard, and they love it, and they're enjoying every element of it. And it's really, really cool until they bring their Hot Wheels up into their mashed potatoes at the table, which is a whole other story. But the fact is, this idea of ultimately enjoying, delighting in this gift, how can we be delighting in this gift that God's given? How has the blood of Jesus allowed us to turn off certain voices this past week? What's it like to come to God just as we are, just feeble in our own flesh and sin, but to come into the fullness of his presence and just be there with him? 
to understand who he is. Does it ever just blow your mind that we've been given such free and privileged access through Jesus? Maybe part of your gratitude this week will be to set aside some time just to look closer at who God is. Who is this God we've been invited to know? This creator, this redeemer, this judge. Psalm 103 and Psalm 145 are some really great places just to meditate. And as we give thanks, this passage makes clear that the most important and the most appropriate things to thank God for are anchored in the unshakable kingdom. Do you see that? Our thanks is in gifts that cannot be taken away. This is why Job can say, when nearly everything in his life, even his health is stripped away, Job can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job knew an unshakable kingdom. And it's oftentimes this practice of giving thanks, noticing these unshakable gifts that God has brought. These are the things that ready us for that second response, this place of worshiping with reverence and awe. You know, when we begin to fully appreciate the richness of all that we've been given as God's sons and daughters, we have a longing to worship. I was thinking about this week. You know, there's really, in a way, there's no other word for what we want to do in that space. The gifts from God have been too extreme. The goodness of the Lord has been too overwhelming. And the cool part about it is that God is the only perfect match to receive our worship, right? Everything else is just an idol, But in God, we get to worship just as we were designed. That one appropriate place just to worship. And so we do worship. We praise him with our words. We honor him in song. We gather together on Sundays. We go out. We offer our work as worship to God. And all the while, all the while, our worship, far from domesticating God, far from making him something that we can control or understand, All of our worship names him actually for who he really is, for all that he really is. You know, this is sometimes why in corporate worship, I'll even just lift my hands as I'm I'm singing this worship song. And I, I realize that can freak some people out. And by the way, I've been in worship settings where I have been totally freaked out. (laughs) You know, the objective of worship was never meant to be a show. But the point is this, that sometimes our own words are inadequate to, to express this response to God. You know, and so when our motives are coming from a pure heart of worship, we do so freely before God in all kinds of ways. Our text mentions this phrase that we worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It kind of raises the question of how do we keep this balance, you know, between honoring God as this awesome, other, all-perfect reality that he is, while at the same time coming freely to him, just being ourselves with total free access. There's a pastor named John Piper who's really kind of helped me with, with this. He, he uses an illustration to talk about the fear of God and kind of a way in which it might, it might function appropriately in our lives. He likens this, this idea of fearing God to a young child who's encountering a big guard dog. Okay, this dog is athletic. It's a dog that's trained to attack. But for those who have been invited in by the master, for those who are there under the master's roof, you're invited to come, your company, then that dog is your friend, right? But as soon as that young child who, who's in that, in that space be, begins to get careless, you know, poking or teasing the dog, 
starting to break house rules, starting, we're starting to run away outside of the parameters, outside of the property bounds, that dog becomes alive as the beast that he was trained to be. His athleticism, his fury is unleashed. Listen to Piper as he applies that illustration to our relationship with God. This is what Piper writes. Do not fear to draw near to God, but keep the fear of the Lord before your eyes, lest you try to run away. God is a joy to be near and a terror to those who flee. If you're running from God, it's because, oh, excuse me, if you're running from God because you're afraid of him, then you're not yet as afraid as you ought to be. In fact, your very flight is a mockery of God, presuming to think that you could outrun him. If you really fear God and love your own life, stop running, turn around and hug his neck. Hug him for dear life, and he will be your peace and security and hope. You see, the fear of God keeps us near to the merciful heart of God. Isaiah 8.13 says it so well. It says, the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. This is the kind of worship that Hebrews 12.29 has in mind. You and I were made for this second mountain. We were made to give gratitude to God, to worship God brightly, to draw near, to celebrate. And for now, we touch this mountain. We taste this feast only in part. But a day is coming when we will be full-fledged citizens of this heavenly kingdom, the city of the living God. And in honor of our Hebrews text today and that reality, and maybe also a little bit for Bill Gorman, I want to close with a quote by C.S. Lewis. I love the way C.S. Lewis envisions this future day when the blood of Jesus, the blood that speaks the better word, will have its last word. This is from The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis writes, The door on which we have been knocking on all our lives will open at last. And then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which, which, have always see, which we've always seen from the outside. It's no mere neurotic fancy, but it's the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. What a promise of hope we have in the blood of Jesus.